I don't know where this thought came from. It just kind of hit me. And um, it hit me early. It's like right after the last retreat was over. It's like I already knew what I wanted to talk about this, uh, this retreat. And I actually had this message ready before uh, last night's message. Last night's message kind of came a little later. Uh, but this one kind of hit me right away. So I hope that I can convey what really hit me. And uh, I just want to talk about all the depth. All the depth. And we're going to be coming from Romans 11 and 33. It says, oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his wisdom and knowledge and riches. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. For who among us can know the mind of the Lord? Who knows enough to be his counselor and guide? And who could ever offer to the Lord enough to induce him to act? For everything comes from God alone. Everything lives by his power and everything is for his glory. To him be glory forevermore. That's from the Living Bible Translation. Uh, regarding the masterful plan of salvation in this verse, Paul is praising God for such wisdom and knowledge. He quotes both from Isaiah and Job in this passage. Uh, the, the Isaiah that quote that he gives us comes from chapter 40, verse 13, which says, Who can advise the spirit of the Lord or be his teacher or give him counsel? Has he ever needed anyone's advice? Did he need instruction as to what is right and best? And the quote that he gives from Job that he combines with it is found in Job 41 and 11. I owe no one anything. Everything under the heaven is mine. We have to understand that God is the cause of everything. Not only is he, is he the cause, but he is the, also the effective cause. And then he is also the end result of that cause. He's all-encompassing, the beginning, the last, the alpha, the omega, everything in between. So he's the first cause, the effective cause, and the final cause of everything. His deep ways are what Paul is saying here in these verses. Number one, they're beyond man's discovering. You can't find it out by man's intuition. Number two, they're beyond man's knowing. Your knowledge is too finite to even match up to it. Number three, it is beyond man's counseling. God doesn't need for us to tell him what to do. And number four, it's beyond man's giving. There's nothing that we could do to gain this knowledge, wisdom, or rich, riches that's found in God. Uh, I want to point out the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And I have a lot of reading that I'm going to do from a few of the um, commentaries that I was reading through on this subject. The distinction between knowledge and wisdom he foreknew these things from the beginning, and having foreknown them, he arranged them wisely. A lot of people think that according to Romans, I believe it's chapter 8, they, they talk about divine destination and the fact that whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate, and whom he did predestinate, he called, who he called, he justified, who he justified, he glorified. Uh, a lot of people think that no matter what you do, you're either saved or lost when you're born. 
But the, the main key to that verse is foreknowledge, whom he did foreknow. It is all according to his foreknowledge. So this writer here, this theologian, Theodoret, says he foreknew these things from the beginning, and having foreknown them, he arranged them wisely. It's almost as if he's kind of, it, it doesn't make sense that God can arrange something, but he does it according to his foreknowledge. Another theologian, Bishop Lightfoot, says, while gnosis is simply intuitive, Sophia is ratiocinative also. While gnosis applies chiefly to the apprehension of truths, Sophia superadds the power of reasoning about them and tracing their relations. So while, not, while knowledge is theoretical, wisdom is practical. And while knowledge is purely intellectual, wisdom is also moral. And for that reason, is both of, of these the most perfect of mental gifts and the queen of all virtues. Knowledge and wisdom go hand in hand. It says, Gnosis seems to refer especially to God's foreknowledge of the free determinations of man's will, both in individuals and nations, while Sophia, or wisdom, denotes the admirable skill with which he includes man's free actions in his plans and transforms them into so many means for the accomplishment of his good purpose. God judges what you're going to do and he acts according to what you're going to do to still make the situation turn out for your good. In other words, the plans that he has for us, he's not going to let our stupidity ruin his plan. That's mercy. And this is why we have to struggle so many times with God between his will and our will. And sometimes we mess up and we miss his voice. We miss his will. We miss his purpose and we miss his destination. But he's still standing there saying, but you could get back on track. That's what I love so much about the smooth path that he makes that even if we get off, he, he's given us a light to the path and to our feet. So if we get back, we can always find ourselves back to the path. All right. So the depth of his grace, here's pretty much what Paul is saying. God's wisdom conceived the plan. His knowledge devised the plan. His judgments prepared the plan and his grace achieves the results. This is why we're saved by grace and not of ourselves. We have to depend upon the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What he's dealing with here in chapter 11 is the plan of salvation, how he called the Jews, and he was their God. But because they rejected Christ when he came, he opened up the church to the Gentiles, and he blinded the Jews. The Jews were actually looking for Christ more than the Gentiles were. But they rejected the Christ that came because they thought that he was coming to, to give them their earthly kingdom, but he was actually coming to build a spiritual kingdom. So the Bible says that he blinded them in part so that the time of the Gentiles could be fulfilled. Now, when you think of what Christ did to fulfill our salvation, and a lot of people say that the Gentile church is not seen in the Old Testament, which is not true. Because a lot of the Old Testament writers always talked about the salvation of the Gentiles through the Messiah, which would come. A lot of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all spoke 
about a Gentile church coming into view and being incorporated into God's plan. But the plan is when he came and he gave his life, and we're talking about God's judgment also with his knowledge and his wisdom. And we, we talk about justice in our society and we study different cases and we look at uh, court TV and, and go through all of the cases. And the question is always, you know, we want to do what's just. We want justice to be served. We want justice to be met out. We want the criminals to pay for their crimes and we want the, the free man to get off and we believe in the jury system and we believe in the court systems. But here we have a God that came down and wrapped himself in flesh and he gave his life while we were yet sinners. He did no wrong. There was no guile found in his mouth. And you wonder, where is the justice in what Christ did for us? Because he didn't deserve to die. So how could we say that it was justice served at Calvary? It was nothing but his mercy and grace. All right, so these wonders that Paul's talking about they constitute a feature of our religion which stand in agreement with our experience on all other subjects. The facts which are laid out in the redemptive plan are all plainly revealed facts. There's no darkness or depth in them. We talk about the cross. It, uh, the, the salvation plan is not something that cannot be understood by the mind. Most people will, can kind of follow you, say, uh, you, we were born in sin. We needed a savior. Somebody that was innocent came and gave his life for you, replaced you at the cross. Most people, even a child, can understand that. So there's no depth in that. So what is Paul talking about here when he says, oh, the depth? The depth and the darkness meet us only as we proceed to philosophize. The further we investigate the things of God anywhere, the more deep and wonderful they become. All right, let's get Second Corinthians uh, 11. This is why we don't want to be lazy in our thinking, especially when we get into the body of Christ. There's so many things that once you start to put so many scriptures together and you study God's word and you start to find out, oh, I didn't know that he meant that. And some scriptures, even five or ten years later, will mean something completely different than it did before because of your experience with Christ. So God, I think, does appeal to our intellect I mean, for us to explore certain things. All right, 2 Corinthians 11 and 3 says, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So one must start with simplicity that is in Christ, in Christ only, before he can explore the hidden wisdom of God. People want to dive into the wisdom of God and, and, and try to find out his mind and his heart, but they don't start with the simplicity of Christ. The simplicity of Christ is the basis, which is how he gives us the doctrine of salvation. It's a simple thing, um, and he calls it the foolishness of preaching, but basically it's very simple to the human mind. But once you start to think about it, and it's easy to say, you know, Christ came, saved us. But once you get into a lot of the terms like redemptive and propitiation and uh, 
sanctification and all that stuff. And you start to realize exactly what intricate details he put into our salvation. We can look back and say, wow, it was really a divine master plan in order to bring all this about. And when they say that we think that we're saved by works because we do certain things that are commanded in scripture, but who in their right mind, I'd, I'd like to know what man would actually say, okay, of all things to say that somebody's going to be saved, I'm going to say you need to be baptized. No man would come up with that. <laughs> I don't know how God devised in his plan to, to save folk through water baptism and the new birth experience, but he did. But the simplicity of Christ is what people need to do. And the simplicity, and we'll get to his love again later, is all about his love. The simplicity of love. And we should be able to understand that because we are people of relation. We have relationships. And because I think that we're, our relationships are so tainted, whether it be parent and child, whether it be husband and wife, whether it be friendships or whatever, a lot of our relationships are tainted. And in our tainted relationships, we get our and devise our plan and our, our mindset of who God is. That's why it's so hard for us to trust him, because you're telling me he's my father. Well, when you say father, my mind automatically goes to my father who neglected me, mistreated me, whatever, or, or uh, just didn't meet up to my standards. And now that portrayal is handed over to Christ. All right. So uh, we have limitations in our views. I like this from a preacher went into the St. Paul's Cathedral and he noticed something about views and perception. There is a striking passage in which a great philosopher, the famous Bishop Berkeley, describes the thought which occurred to him of the inscrutable schemes of providence as he saw in St. Paul's Cathedral a fly moving on one of the pillars. It requires, he says, some comprehension in the eye of an intelligent spectator to take in at one view the various parts of the building in order to observe their harmony and design. But to the fly, whose prospect was confined to a little part of one of the stones of a single pillar, the joint beauty of the whole or the distinct use of its parts was inconspicuous. To that limited view, the small irregularities on the surface of the hewn stone seemed to be so many deformed rocks and precipices or cliffs. That fly on the pillar of which the philosopher spoke is the likeness of each human being as he creeps along the vast pillars which support the universe. The sorrow which appears to us nothing but a yawning chasm or hideous precipice may turn out to be but the joining or cement which binds together the fragments of our existence into a solid whole. That dark and crooked path in which we have to grope our way in doubt and fear may be but the curve which in the full daylight of a brighter world will appear to be the necessary finish of some choice ornament an inevitable span of some majestic arch. What he's saying is the little things that we go through in life, if we dissect our little experiences in life, we will be like the fly on that pillar. He couldn't stand back and see the grand arches in St. Paul's Cathedral. 
that fly on the wall, all he could see was the little cracks on the stone that he was on. But the humans, who God was able to give a better perceptive view, they were able to look and see how the whole building came together. And this is what Christ is trying to do through the mysteries which he reveals to the church. To the natural man, they're like the fly on the wall. They can't understand how God put this and that together and orchestrates our lives. But we, when he opens up our understanding and gives us wisdom and knowledge that only he can give, then we can stand back and say, wow, look at this plan that he has devised for us. All right, Isaiah 59. I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 and 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Even the wisdom of, of the angelic hosts couldn't break the code of God's mystery. They desired to look into what we call salvation. 1 Peter 1 and 12 says, They were finally told that these things would not occur during their lifetime, but long years later, during yours. And now at last, this good news has been plainly announced to all of us. It was preached to us in the power of the same heaven-sent Holy Ghost, which spoke to them. And it is all so strange and wonderful that even the angels in heaven would give a great deal to know more about it. In fact, there's another verse in scripture that actually says that the angels only know of our salvation what the saints are testifying to one another about it. Because God didn't give them the liberty to look into it. But since they're, they're our keepers and God has given them the oversight of us to keep our way and keep our feet from, from slipping, then they hear us talking about this wonderful salvation and they actually get to hear some things that they desire to look into from us. The devil does not always know what God's doing. That's why sometimes it's, it's good to keep our mouth shut, because when we speak it, we are revealing God's secrets to the devil. So Paul lists two things that are unsearchable. Number one, he says that his judgments are unsearchable, which means his counsels and his purposes. And then he says his ways are unsearchable, which means the execution of those counsels and purposes in other words, God has the, he, he is the decider as to whether he will let you know what he's up to or not. Sometimes we think he owes it to us. Oh, I need to know what's going on in my life. This is my life. You know, this is what you're doing to me. And I, I you know, I need to know. Sometimes God's not going to tell you what's going on. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he won't. But not only his, are his judgments unsearchable but also the way he implements those judgments in our lives so although there are some things he has revealed to us there are still secrets which he withholds from us Deuteronomy 29 and 29 says there are secrets the Lord your God has not revealed to us but these words that he has revealed are for us and our children to obey forever so the judgments of his mouth and the way of our duty, blessed be God, are plain and easy. It is a highway, but the judgments of his hands and the ways of his providence are dark and mysterious, which therefore we must not pry into, but silently adore and acquiesce in. That's from Matthew Henry commentary. What he's saying is God 
can design what he wants to design and he doesn't have to answer to us for him to fulfill it in our lives. We have to trust that God has our best interests at heart. A lot of times when you're in the test, when you're in, in the belly, when you're in the fire and it's hot, you don't know what's going on, you don't know what the outcome's gonna be. We do, now we have knowledge that whatever goes on, the end result is my heart will be pure. My motives will be pure. Amen. What I do for God will be pure. I'll be able to do it with freedom. I'll be able to do it with no condemnation. I'll be able to do it. People can talk about me. They can scandalize my name. But I know that God will have placed me in that experience because I went through the fire for that purpose. Let's get Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 and 17 says, And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living within you as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love, and may you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long, how wide, how deep, and how high his love really is, and to experience this love for yourselves, though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know or understand it. And so at last you will be filled up with God himself. How beautiful is that, is that scripture? He said he's praying for us that we will be more, that Christ will be more and more at home in our hearts. It just makes you think, how many hearts has Christ filled where he feels like a complete stranger? Like, this is not home. It's like something happened. And I think sometimes that's how Christ feels. We, the decisions that we've made cause him to feel like a complete stranger in the house that he paid for. He paid it. He bought it. He's keeping it breathing, but he doesn't feel at home. So that's Paul's prayer. I want Christ to just be able to stretch out, kick his legs up, do whatever he wants to do. Feel comfortable in you. Then he says, may your roots go deep down into the soil of God's, God's marvelous love, and may you be able to feel and understand as all God's children should. We should all understand this. You should not be a, your father's child and not know who your father is. That goes back to our society. Most people deal with the fact of, or, or the question of whether their parents really love them or not. Because if, if you say you love me, I, I'm not feeling the love. <laughs> but Christ wants us to feel his love. I think I talked about that scripture last night. His love wants to encompass everything that you are. All right. Then, now, Paul, in our text, he says, he deals with the depth. Oh, the depth of both the wisdom, the knowledge, and the riches of Christ. But here, once he brings his love in, it expands beyond depth. Because now he talks about how long, how wide. And how deep. 
So his love will take anything that God is and expand it and magnify it in our lives. Yes, the plan is magnificent, but once you center that plan around his love, it grows all the more. So now we've gone from deep to now long and wide and high. Now, now it's got, uh, it, it's just outdone itself. This plan, this love. Now, in that verse, Paul is talking about the soil of God's love. He wants us to be planted in the soil of God's love. But in Mark 4 and 5, he's talking about the seed. Some fell on thin soil with underlying rock. It grew up quickly enough, but soon wilted beneath the hot sun and died because the roots had no nourishment in the shallow soil. So here we see the grafting in of the vine. Both God's word and our spirits have roots. In Ephesians 3, we're to be rooted in his love. In Mark 4 and 5, his word is supposed to be rooted in our hearts. So I don't know if you remember when we talked about the, the grafting in of the vine, when I talked about the vine and the branches. Both God's word and our spirits have roots. Those roots must be joined together in order for the sap of the vine to run freely through each of the attached branches. So the branches got to take root and also uh, the love of God has to take root. We have to take root in his love. His word has to take root in us. His word and his love are inseparable. This is why I don't like to hear people preach the gospel out of fear and try to scare people when the basis of the gospel was delivered by the love of God. For God so loved the world, it didn't say for God was so angry with the world. It didn't say that God was so ready to pour out his wrath on the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was nothing but love, but we have tainted even God's divine love with fear tactics in the church. It's like the old show HBO used to do called Scared Straight. Think that by taking a group of little kids that are thinking about getting involved in gang uh, activity, take them down to the morgue, show them a few folk that have been shot dead in the street, and it'll scare them straight. Some of them probably, it probably worked for, but the others probably didn't. When the fact is, the thing that was missing in these kids' life was love at home. They had no one to show them the love that they were looking for. They found that love in the street. Well, they thought it was love in the streets. We'd be surprised the scripture that says love hides a multitude of sin. How, how far would that scripture go? Do we believe that? That it will actually cover my faults as big as they are and as many as I have. His love will cover it. God's wisdom. Proverbs 4, and we hear this all the time. Getting wisdom is the most important thing you can do. And with your wisdom, develop common sense and good judgment. There's no sense in saying how wise God has made you, the wisdom he's poured into you, and you're still making stupid decisions. You can't put common sense together to know this is not the thing for me to say right now. This is not the place for me to go. This is not the thing for me to do right now. This is, this is not maybe I shouldn't really go down that 
aisle now. Sometimes it is the right thing to do, but not at the right time. God's give us wisdom in order to do those things. All right. James 1 and 5, I love the scripture, says, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. And he will gladly tell you. For he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. But when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you, for a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and every decision you then make will be uncertain, as you turn first this way and then that. If you don't ask with faith, don't expect the Lord to give you an, a solid answer. So then we battle unbelief. Lord, you, you, you've laid out your plan of salvation. You've, you've hidden things from the Jews, given it to the Gentiles. We really didn't understand any other ways of God, even with the Old Testament stuff. The stuff that they grew up and lived by and they know God told them, we just now studying it. <laughs> We get excited, oh, look at the priest's garment and all oh, what the colors mean and the amethyst and, and all that stuff. This is what they lived by. But he has given a treasure to us that is more valuable than what they have. And then, like Pina said, he wants to show us the desires of his heart, wants to give us his wisdom, give us his eyes, give us his ears, give us his words. And if he's desiring to give us that and we don't have it, where's the disconnect? Something went wrong somewhere. And this is a scripture that I've always studied, uh, actually had a problem with because I've always said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Which way do you want me to go? And he just, to me, says nothing. <laughs> I got this choice. I could do A, B, or C. Which way should I go? And then you you you. Uh, do what you were taught to do well ask the Lord to open every door that should be open and close every door that should be shut but they all stand in front of you what do you do when you have all of these decisions and the, the best answer that I could come up with is that I didn't believe in the first place that God would answer me so the question is do we really believe that God's going to answer our prayer because he says, if you want the wisdom, simply ask him. I'm going to read a little bit about how Christ has revealed mysteries to us. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 6, it says, Yet when I am among mature Christians, I do speak with words of great wisdom, but not the kind that comes from here on earth. And not the kind that appeals to the great men of this world who are doomed to fall. Our words are wise because they are from God, telling of God's wise plan to bring us into the glories of heaven. This plan was hidden in former times, though it was made for our benefit before the world began. But the great men of the world have not understood it. If they had, they never would have crucified the Lord from glory. That is what is meant by the scriptures, which say that no mere man has ever seen, heard, or even imagined what wonderful things God has ready for those who love the Lord. But we know about these things because God has sent his spirit to tell us. 
and his spirit searches out and shows us all of God's deepest secrets. No one can really know what anyone else is thinking or what he is really like except that person himself. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And God has actually given us his spirit, not the world's spirit, to tell us about the wonderful free gifts of grace and blessing that God has given us. In telling you about these gifts, we have even used the very words given to us by the Holy Spirit, not words that we as men might choose. So we use the Holy Spirit's words to explain the Holy Spirit's facts. We can't put into simple layman terms sometimes what God has said. Sometimes you wonder, Lord, why do you want me to say it like that? Because the Holy Ghost has given you the exact words that will tap into that person, that person's life, when we speak to each other. When God spoke to us, he spoke specific words to us. Like Penis always talks about when you talk to God, usually he'll talk back to you with kind of with your own kind of personality. So the Holy Ghost is the thing that gives us the wisdom to tap into those words that we need to say. He goes on to say, but the man who isn't a Christian can't understand and can't accept these thoughts from God, which the Holy Spirit teaches us. They sound foolish to him because only those who have the Holy Spirit within them can understand what the Holy Spirit means. Others just can't take it in. But the spiritual man has insight into everything, and that bothers and baffles the man of the world who can't understand him at all. He's given us a wisdom and a knowledge where folk will actually wonder, how could you understand that? How could you know that? And when we're at peace in our trials and in our tests and we go through our 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 experiences where we're, we're surrounded by troubles but we, we don't bend and break and we don't buckle and cave in, it, it's that they, and even when Paul says that we don't sorrow as those that have no hope, we sorrow but it's a little different than those who don't have faith in God, those who don't know God. So it's a little disturbing when they see us acting as they would because we claim to have this vast knowledge of God that he's got our back, but we come unraveled like we don't even know him, like he's never spoken to us. We have to live, like she said, your situation, your calling is tied to so many people's lives and we don't know the number. It could be a hundred, it could be a thousand, it could be two. But everyone is important to Christ, and he has assigned them to you in his, this whole scheme of his master plan. Okay, so how could this man understand? For certainly he has never been one to know the Lord's thoughts or to discuss them with him or to move the hands of God by prayer. But strange as it seems, we Christians actually do have within us a portion of the very thoughts and the mind of Christ. Now, he's telling us back here when we read the first text that you can't get into God's mind. But when you have faith in him and you receive his love, 
What does he do? He gives you the desires, the secrets of his heart. He shows you the mysteries that only he would tell somebody. Nobody else. Angels can't give you certain secrets because they don't know about them. Not as it pertains to your salvation, not as it pertains to your calling and how he has graciously and lovingly saved you. Only God can reveal that secret to you. And through life, we, we all wake up sometimes and go, wow, I've been missing this point. Well, how God will show something that's in you. And you realize that that was you. And how long it took him to break that. For you to realize, I didn't know that I was that kind of person. I didn't know that I actually had that type of attitude. I didn't know that my motives were off. I've had God show me that your motive is wrong. It's not pure. And we like to talk about other people's motives. But God's really trying to show you your own motive. We don't like to know our motive. We're not talking about my motive. We're talking about your motive. But Paul says that we actually have the mind of Christ. He says that the stranger can't know them because he's never been known to know the Lord, to speak to the Lord, or to move his hand by prayer. Now, all of those things we have. We know him, we can speak to him, and we can move his hand by prayer. 1 Corinthians 13. His ways are unsearchable, but if you just delight yourself in him, he'll actually just freely show them to you. You can't get it by finding him out. You can't search around and fill him out. You can't investigate him out. You have to simply just get caught up in him. And in that loving relationship, I think they call it a marriage pillow talk. You just lay and you just talk to one another. And God tells you some things as you love him. Because we're supposed to study the word. We're supposed to get our books out and get out uh, the theologians in the, the first century church fathers and see what they said about the matters and what God showed to them and we get some dictionaries and some lexicons and some Greek and some Hebrew but nothing is going to replace the intimate time that God because sometimes I've had God show me stuff that I didn't even know was in the scriptures sometimes two years later then I'm like, oh that's a scripture I thought God was just dealing with me personally because I was in a relationship with him. All right, 1 Corinthians 13 and 12 says, In the same way, we can see and understand only a little bit about God now, as if we were peering at his reflection in a poor mirror. But someday, we're going to see him in his completeness, face to face. Now, all that I know is hazy and blurred, but then... I will see ever, everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. I think the King James says that I see through a glass darkly now, but then I will, I will know even as I am known. How is God 
going to impart everything that he knows about us into us. Paul is saying that everything that God knows about me personally, when I get my new body, when, when I get to heaven and spend eternity with him, I'll have that same knowledge. I really believe that when he says we're the body of Christ, we are really the body of Christ, literally. <laughs> because we will have his knowledge. What is it going to be like to know it all? And he says, right now we see through it darkly. Right now we get glimpses. I think this is part of the gifts of the church, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. I think those are the glimpses that Paul talks about, how we're able to speak not only into our own lives, into our children's lives, to our friends' lives, to our families' lives, those that God sends in our, and puts in our pathways, we're able to speak directly to them. I've had to learn to speak when God tells me to speak. Because for a long time, I feel these urges to go and tell somebody something. And for so long, I just shut my mouth. And the main thing was fear. Well, maybe it's just me. You know, I'm just tripping. You know, I don't know what that person going through. You know, I could be wrong then you feel you don't want to look stupid. But I had to get over it. And now I just, when, when stuff comes to me, I put it out there. And God has proven time and time again that it's right on. Not that it has anything to do with me. I'm just a vessel, but he wants to use all of us that way. Pina's mother used to always say, Andre, God deals with you in dreams. I'd be like, oh, mother, that's just something I ate or something last night. No, really, I really think God really speaks to you in your dreams. And several weeks ago, I came up to her. I said, you know what? I had a dream about you that you were, uh, you had uh, your own business or something, and uh, you were doing a business transaction or something, and uh, I was congratulating on you, be congratulating you because the business was going so well. And she came up to me the, uh, a few days later and said, now, I know God gave you that because I have, I'm getting ready to start my own business. And that was confirmation that God sees it. Now, that might have been kind of the push that she needed to go on and get that license and, and, and everything. She might have been in fear. I don't know whether she was confident and said, oh, what's the use? There, there's so many other businesses out there to do what I do, and they don't need me. But sometimes God will send somebody to, to encourage you to do it. We've got an encouragement for what we do. So all of that has been confirmed because it's God, godly wisdom. I couldn't do it. The only way I could do it is when we started getting close to God, he started to speak wisdom into our lives. I'm only 36 years old. I would venture to say this is probably folk 60 that, that are still in the same place they were when they were God knows kids. It's a waste of God's anointing for us to sit and do nothing. But the key is to get entrenched in his love. For us to get deep rooted, not in religiosity, not in an organization, but in his love. 
Because that's the thing that's going to outlast everything. Now abide at these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is what? Love. Can't beat that. So when he talks about this depth, just as there is a bottomless pit prepared for those who reject Christ, there is an endless depth to the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ for those that believe him. If there's no limit to hell, why would he give us a limit to heaven? There's no limitations on God. This is why we ought to have the joy, the peace. We ought to be comforted. All of these things that are promised to, to the believer, we should really emphatically take. They're yours. You don't have to be depressed, all stressed out, anxious. God is able to work it out and give you peace in it, real peace.